Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Cole, I'll, I'll let you kind of, um, I'm so glad you asked Daryl because I, I remember back in school some conversations about this, but, uh, and I, I'm interested to hear how Daryl's views might have changed since then. But I think maybe you want to get us started because you're the one with the problem. I'll watch anything. Wow. I'm <laughs> wow. Well, um, first of all, real quick, our three tenets of this podcast are yeah. that we are uh, that sacred cows make great barbecue. Yes, which is really important here. It is that we yeah. let our flags fly proudly and we are always bros before politicos. And this topic, um, it, it does intersect Christians in the public square because we're talking about higher education, which is quite a public commodity. Um, some people object to the word commodity in that way, but it, in many ways it is. I have kind of caught Daryl up on last episode with Emma Knatzer, but I'll set the stage for a moment and let Daryl talk for a while and, and you ask questions, Scott. Sounds and good. And I'll chime in Kim. So what we're talking about, um, well, first of all, Daryl Tippins is our guest today. He has been on our podcast before, uh, I believe during season one. And I really wanted him to come on to address the topic of um, literature and what we find profane or not profane and whether the 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 destination is worth the journey, which is where we were talking with Emma last time. Daryl Tippins has been a literature professor at three faith-based universities and the, the provost at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. He was also a scholar in residence here at Abilene Christian after that and has um, a lifetime of teaching literature um, under his belt. So what I wanted to talk about with him is from his perspective as both a longtime teacher and award-winning teacher and provost, Daryl, we have been talking about um, assigning literature at the university level, um, particularly contemporary world literature, which um, seeks to gather in authors that are new and that have been lifted up recently as award-winning and so forth. And the conversation has turned to a lot of that literature has what a lot of people would call um, profane language, profane subject matter, and so forth. And much of it still could be argued to have redemptive qualities of protagonists or, or redemptive qualities that help answer the question that we in literature say we try to answer, which is, how do we better understand the human condition? And the question at hand, I guess, today is where do we draw a line if we should even draw one when we are making decisions about what content to offer our students and have them read in our class? Well, uh, you have opened a very big can of worms, and we probably don't have time to uh, digest all of them. But uh, I will say that uh, those who real deal with this uh, question really in the classroom and in the university, uh, those people have my complete and total sympathy and understanding because I don't think the question is likely to go away anytime soon. But I do think there are some general principles um, 
that we can lay down that may help us work towards um, uh, something of a, of, a, of a working solution, you might say. First of all, I don't think there is such a thing as a kind of objective standard that you can just overlay any book and then presto, you know it goes in the garbage can or it goes on this shelf for perpetuity. Uh, I just don't know what, what those criteria would be. I do have the sympathy, you know, with the uh, the famous statement from the Supreme Court Justice who said, I don't know how to define pornography, but I know it when I see it. And I would say uh, most people get that, that there's something that can cross a line. In other words, I, and I think especially so at a Christian university, we must have some idea of good and evil. And we must believe there is a difference between good and evil. And if there is good and evil, then we have to pose the question, is it possible that a certain work doesn't merely present evil or present the problem of evil, but it actually crosses the line over into the encouragement of the practice of evil? Now, that for me becomes a very interesting question, because to say, no, there's no such thing as a work of art or literature or a film that could ever cross the line and invite someone to participate in evil or to practice evil or to give oneself over to evil, I would just say, well, that's a really interesting position to hold, that books do not have that power. In fact, I think books have enormous power. I wouldn't have taught literature for decades if I didn't have the, the deep conviction that a good book can change people for the good. Well, if a good book can change someone for the good, isn't it also possible that a bad book can cause someone to perform or engage in or enter into evil? If you think that's possible, then when you select your syllabus, you at least have to entertain the question, not do I like this book or does this book have some redeeming qualities to it? but what will its effect actually be on real human beings? And that especially becomes important when you talk about children and young adults. It's one thing to be fully formed and to have your, your, uh, your moral uh, compass you know, fully intact. And it's another thing for it to be uh, shaped you know, in, in, in the process of being shaped. And so I would have a different uh, view of, of an approved list for a eight-year-old or an eight-year-old than I would for someone who's 26, for example. And so to me, again, it's a moving target here a bit, simply because you've got to talk to me about who, are, what's the audience we're, we're dealing with? Who are we talking about? Well, now, Daryl, let me, let me, the conversation we were ha having before we started, you used um, an interesting term that I, I believe you, the way you phrased it was to participate imaginatively in the going the goings on of the book the plot the which is qualitatively different from other types right can you say something about that well isn't it true that really good art doesn't merely present something at arm's length you know objectively but it invites you into a world it mm -hmm. it that's the whole nature of the imaginative experience isn't it mm -hmm. uh to invite you into participate as it were to become a participant in the story and i, I think that's where uh certain descriptions of violence and of sexual behavior 
can be so graphic, let us say, that it um, is it becomes a burden of temptation. And and this this is another reason why it's difficult to, to have an objective standard here, because for one person who's maybe entirely mature in such matters, they would understand what's going on in a scene of murder or mayhem, uh, but it wouldn't in the least tempt them. But we know there are people who are uh, deeply affected by what they see. I know people who who don't have a moral objection to violence in a movie, but they personally say, I cannot go there. They know what their boundary is. They know what their standard is, and they will not participate in a scene of graphic violence in a movie. And I must say that's when I'm in that category. I have my tolerance for watching people being blown to shreds uh, wears thin after a little while. And so without being overly judgmental, you know, or uh, prissy about it, I just say, no, that's not for me. And I think this is where the professor of literature has a real bit of a burden in here. And that is, it's not enough for them to say, a, legally, I have the right to do this, or B, my university gives me permission to do this, but you've got to say, what is good for my reading audience? What ultimately will serve the interests of the course? Yes, but also respect the character, uh, the level of maturity of my students, and their spiritual needs. Uh, and psychological needs, I might add. And I think that's why at ACU, years ago when I taught here, we had a policy in the university that you could object to a book and receive permission to read an al do an alternate reading. It was invoked very seldom, but it was there, and it took care of the problem. Mm -hmm. But the idea that no matter what, you have to read this book because I've assigned it, to me, is, is a bit of a problem. You know, okay, uh, and that, yeah, I, I I appreciate that, Daryl, in part because I think, um, you know, we had the um, we used to have the question that was just a question of moral compass, but I can imagine a scenario where I would want students to know there's sexual violence here, and if you've experienced sexual violence, that can be a kind of trauma. For you as a student, and um, and want to invite you to explore other options uh, because of that. I mean, I can imagine a scenario where um, that that moves away from just whether it's uh, sexy or not sexy, and becomes more a question of uh, the individual student's own experiences, experiences yeah. with with race, experiences with violence, experiences with with traumas. I, yes. I, I'm, I'm stopping short of using trigger warning, but I kind of mean that. Yes. Well, in fact, what's interesting in the secular uh, university, in the secular academy, there is growing awareness of the seriousness of this. And so uh, there is now uh, a general awareness that uh, the teacher uh, must be aware of and sensitive to what could be truly traumatizing for a member of the class. So it's quite interesting that on the left end of the spectrum, of political spectrum, there is a growing respect for this idea that texts can damage a person, at least potentially so. What I want is teachers on the Christian right in a Christian university to say, oh, that could be true for someone who is much more of a traditionalist, by the way. 
So whether we call it a trigger warning or not, uh, I think, and I think that word is uh, too easily, uh, yeah. I don't know, inadequate, let us say. But and pilloried. <laughs> mindful of, being mindful of your audience and what is good for them. Mm. You know, in the New Testament, Paul says all things are possible, but not all things build up. So while there may be the right to do lots of things, uh, the question is, what is prudent, what is constructive, and what is healthful? And I think fairly to ask, is there a way to get to the same objective, but with a different text? And I'll bet you, with the millions of books out there, <laughs> and the great array of, of uh, canonical texts and maybe new non-canonical texts, you can get to the same goal without deeply offending your students or without presenting them with something that might present evil in an inviting or um, beneficial way. And that those are judgment calls. I totally get it. But I think that it's a judgment call that is on our shoulders as literature teachers at a faith-based university. I think Scott has some pushback on that, but before you get to it, Scott, let me just say this conversation since Emma joined our podcast has been going apace at, uh, around my workplace, and it's all been very um, full of camaraderie. No one's really yelling at, other, at each other. We're actually really quite enjoying the conversation, and the, the teacher of this course, who I think we might have him as a guest at some point, okay. he was saying – Look, why are you centering upon profanity and explicit sex scenes when books about war and violence and people stabbing each other and have been going on for decades? Why is it this? So we started getting into a talk. Well, is it meant to titillate the reader? Is it meant to ap appeal to the most base, um, our base sensations? And as Daryl just said, of imaginative literature to place us in a world where we are more or less embracing what this, what the author has has set forth as perhaps a sub-level of the writing uh, in order to um, sell more books or what have you, which is qualitatively different, I think. So Scott, go ahead and, and push back some and let's see what you got. Well, uh, Daryl, I, I don't know if anybody should be held accountable for what they said 30 years ago, but I remember <laughs> when um, you showed a film in uh, um, Literature Belief, you showed us The Mission, which it's still in my top three films of all time. But before you showed the film, you said, now, uh, uh, students, there are going to be bare breasts and I'm going to need you to be grown up about it. <laughs> okay uh and i i was like yeah well okay and and of course you know we could we could we can grow up we we should have grown up so that we could get to some of the some of this the messages behind the narrative that really f force us to think about the relationships the 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 the, the uh the nature of salvation um in Mendoza's character, the 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 effect of um, religion and its relationship with colonization. There's so much that needs to be unpacked. You're gonna have to grow up a little bit. Um, so I, 
I hear that you're making decisions and trying to discern where the where the where that mark is, but you're also saying in that discernment, there are things that I need you to accept in order to get somewhere else. And I kind of want to unpack that that part. I get that that we're trying to find the limits. That part makes sense to me. Um, But there is also a decision that you need to read this. You need to grow in this experience. Um, And I know all good heresy starts with uh, an analogy, but in the case of the Good Samaritan, you know, the Pharisee passed by on the other side of the road. But in the text, it says that the Levite came by the place. And some scholars wonder whether that means the Levite came close to the man, uh, the robber who was on the side of the road to to get a better look at what had happened to him. So that maybe he didn't go the four cubits. Maybe he just came right up close. But for sure, the Good Samaritan got in the man's business to, in order to, in order to be helpful. And so the motivation for, for the Good Samaritan in becoming intimately involved in experiencing whatever uncleanness comes from interacting with someone who's covered in blood and, and having experienced violence is the kind of he needed to do that. He needed to get involved at that level. Um, and that is a different motivation than the Levite, if the Levite came near to see what's going on. So that's, I, I kind of want to unpack that with you because I feel like that's an important part of this discussion. Yeah, yeah, I get that point. Uh, and it's well, well, well made. And in fact, I think you've introduced an element that needs clarification, and that is, uh, texts don't just stand alone, you know, floating freely in space. They they inhabit a context. They dwell in a context. And the context that the teacher creates for the text alters the way the text is received. And that's a very important element here. Uh, I, the, the studies I read on this were a little bit old. It was some years ago I read this, but they discovered in studying children watching uh negative things on television, like scenes of violence or whatever, they discovered that if the scenes were watched with a parent and the parent had conversation with the child before, during, or after, it totally changed how the scene affected the child. In other words, just the passive reception of the images by the child had much more uh, negative impact than when the parents, in a sense, disarmed the scene, as it were with conversation with the child. Uh, I think there might be an analogy for even the university classroom, that the way the setting, the way the scene is set up, the way the text is set up, uh, changes it dramatically. And then let me give you a, a very current example. Right now, there, the whole debate in America is about critical race theory. If you look at the ideology behind CRT, uh, much of it has roots in Marxism, It has roots in Michel Foucault and notions of power and power relations and how power circulates in culture. I mean, when I start reading the the primary sources behind CRT, it's like, I know these uh, themes because I taught them for 20 years (laughs) at the university. Uh, You know, it wasn't all addressed to race, but it was addressed to questions of gender and class and so forth. And I'm proud to say that I taught those things at a Christian university. But I myself am not a Marxist, 
and I have trouble with certain ideas in Foucault or Nietzsche, and, and yet I want those things taught, but I want them contextualized. So for me, the question is not just, can you teach text X, Y, or Z, but what is the setup for the teaching of this text? Uh, what are you doing with it? How are you handling these scenes that may be profoundly disturbing or offensive to members of your class? If you don't do that, uh, then you, I think that's when you're in trouble. Uh, and to me, this feeds into a huge problem in America right now where there is a profound lack of empathy in our culture for people who are different from you. So if I have a very conservative student in my class who doesn't want to read uh, this text, I at least as a Christian and as a human being owe this person my empathy and understanding. It doesn't mean I just completely throw the text out, but it means I take it into account and I don't be dismissive about it. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's one of our great problems here right now is our failure to sympathize and empathize with those who may be in a different space. Yeah. And, and when we, when we assume that a student is just prude or is just unwilling to, uh, uh, to do the work, we make assumptions about people's motivations a lot. And, and I think that's a, I think that's a great warning. Think empathetically about everybody. I want to jump in somewhere uh, just to go for it. To, um, just to make sure that one click more conservative of a position is considered. Okay, Scott, I, uh, your analogy of the Good Samaritan falls flat for me for this <laughs> reason. If I were taking a class in evangelism, and we were talking about how to save souls. All right. Or just having a conversation. And you had a student or a member of that class who said, you know what? I don't want to go into a bar and try to save souls with my um, the methods that we've learned in this class, because I might hear people cursing or I might see people who are drunk. And those things are bad to me. That is where the analogy of the Good Samaritan that you just mentioned, people who come close into a context of things um, that they that they find offensive, that's where that analogy holds. But when you are sitting down and opening a book and watching a movie, you are physically engaging in a text in a way that is qualitatively optional and not the same as dealing with human beings. And I see you shaking your head. And to me, To ask a to to say to a student, this has things in it that many people find profane, and I want you to sit in your chair, turn on your lamp, and read a couple hundred pages of it. It's very different from you have to be in the world where people are often profane, and be a light to them. You see what I mean? I do see what you mean. I mean, one of the things that I'm really uh, a light bulb that came on for me about y'all's experience and the challenge that you have is it's one thing to say, I'm going to engage with this text. It's another thing to say, you need to engage with this text, (laughs) right? The directive nature of what you do as an instructor and whether you, whether and how you hold students accountable for which 
uh, literature you're going to assign in a class and what the consequences for deciding not to participate in that are. That's a very different dynamic. But I will say, I don't think it's an option. That's why I was nodding my head. No, I don't think empathy is an option for uh, for those of us who are members of the way. And I think we have, let's, let's be clear. The question for the Good Samaritan is not whether you saved his soul, it's whether you picked him up and carried him to an inn and covered his wounds with bandages and anointed his head with oil. It's not about whether he ends up in heaven or not. It's about taking taking action and having service. And the reason I think the analogy stands is I want the listener to know I think there is value in understanding our neighbors in really getting into their experiences. I might find them distasteful. I might find them repulsive, but I also want to understand. And that's a different motivation than just um, rubbernecking. I don't mean I want to see all the, uh, you know, but but uh, do you remember uh, Ishmael in the beginning of Moby Dick says, I, you know, I want to I want to understand uh, the monsters and become familiar with them if they would let me. Um I think there is something about you can do that just for the sake of adventure, but you can also do that in order to understand your neighbor. And I don't think that's optional. I actually don't think it's optional. I don't think we can wear a white cloak and say, this can't get stained. So I'm sorry. I can't know about your alcoholism. I'm sorry. I can't know about um, the trauma you've experienced in your life. I can't really understand or listen to stories about how people have been abused because I wear this white cloak that can't get dirty. That's why I was nodding my head. It's not an option. Yeah. And I, I, I for the sake of time, we may not be able to get here, but I'll just, <laughs> no, there's, I think there's a big difference between yeah. the content that a novel covers and the road that it takes to cover it. That's kind well, of where I've all this time. And the, and, the, and another part of the problem is I've just made an aritaic argument, which is that the motivation matters. Well, that's not that's not a very good answer. <laughs> yeah. It's very dissatisfying to say, well, I'm going to read Fifty Shades of Grey because um, I need to understand somebody else. Or I'm going to read Fifty Shades of Grey because it seems like a bit, that'd be a sexy book to read. Those are two different motivations, and one I can uphold as noble, and the other I can say I, I'm I'm not really comfortable with this. Yeah, I I would say there is no noble reason to read. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read it because I haven't needed to understand those neighbors. <laughs> well, I'm being very serious in in that in the Jacobs language, um, Alan Jacobs. After reading one chapter of Fifty Shades of Grey, I I find no reason to read it. And by the way, I haven't read a chapter of 50. I'm just saying I know enough about it. that I, Right. right. Um, I, and, and so, Daryl, let me just press you to clarify one point, because it seems like you were saying something that I wonder if you were really saying. OK, I know Scott would say it. I don't know if you would say it. Um, <laughs> well, I think you were saying a moment ago, if you deem that your students, quote unquote, can handle it, then any book is. No, I think there are, there are multiple issues here, and, okay. and I don't want to conf conflate them. Okay. I think uh, if, in your pro professional and uh, personal opinion, this book has great merit, you're, and the fact that I'm putting it on my syllabus, I'm making a claim, aren't I? Mm -hmm. I'm saying this has real merit, then I'm not going to just automatically toss it when I get an objection from a student. Okay. 
that's not good enough reason. Uh, that that's a starting point, but it's mm, not the ending. That's and uh, so there are other criteria that I've already introduced about the student's mature maturity and other options. What's going on here? I was reading an article recently by a man from China uh, who is now studying in the U.S. and he's older and has married married and has a child and he was talking about his child's experience of studying in public schools in America versus in China <laughs> and it was not a very favorable uh, comparison as you might imagine he, uh, no homework to speak of how easy it was but he said that in China uh, Chinese make fun of American students and they call them snowflakes and it's because they are hearing these stories about how students can opt out for so so easily, you know, because of an objection here. It's too much homework, or it's too hard, or or whatever. And he he was kind of mocking the idea of snowflakes. I don't want to be a party to encouraging snowflakeism or whatever. Right. But it's not the same thing as saying someone has a serious moral objection. They are a disciplined student. They're a hardworking student. They don't want to do less. They want to do more then to me, there is an obligation to consider alternate paths to the same destination. And I want to get this point in too, and this is because I teach primarily older literature, English or Renaissance literature, let us say, how is it possible that Shakespeare had so many colorful ways to curse? <laughs> I mean, I've seen the lists of curses in Shakespearean uh, plays. It's miles long and not right. one is there an F-bomb? <laughs> and I can now go to a movie today and it's like every third word. And I would say the problem with a contemporary literature of that sort is not uh, that it's immoral, it's unimaginative. It's right. so- <laughs> It's just badly done. <laughs> it's badly done, yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a reason to have expletives here and there and great literature has always had them. Uh, but this kind of uh, infatuation, this obsession with a few choice, you know, for so-called forbidden words, they're not forbidden anymore. And it's, it's colorless. Uh, I did happen to see a really good movie last night. I want to highly recommend it. I think it should win several Academy Awards. It's the House of Gucci. And it's a fascinating story. And it's pretty, uh, you know, uh, on the edge in certain respects in terms of what happens. But I think maybe the F-bomb occurred once or twice in the whole movie. And it's like two and a half hours long. And what I noticed was how well it's written and how well character is developed and how interesting the plot is and how good the acting is and how fantastic the music is. So, you know, uh, to me, it's still possible even in the 20th, 21st century to produce art that is not immersed in sexuality or profanity or so forth. So to me, there's there's an ethical question here. It's, it's not yeah. just a moral I think the ethic, I think the it's an aesthetics question, I mean yes. to say. It's an aesthetics question, yeah. not just a moral question. And I think uh, there is some I think the day will come when we will look back on some of the books that are on our short list and we'll go, my gosh, what were we thinking? That has no staying power. No So staying the headline power. for it's, this, Daryl, is Daryl Tippin says we need better cussing. <laughs> well, that would be a good point. I, I hope it's not my best point. <laughs>